This is John Halsman, and welcome to the latest Around the World in 20 Minutes, where we try to make sense of the beguiling new planet we find ourselves on. I am just back from London, where I had a fantastic gig on the 4th of July with my British friends. And yes, the founders of my country would find irony in that, but I do not. Um, I went to see Investec, where we talked about American grand strategy, its past and its future. Uh, it was a chance for me to try out some book ideas for the upcoming book tour, and I have begun the final edits of the book. It's now a race the next two weeks to get everything done in time for four days off at last. Finally a break, going to Ischia with Sarah, going swimming, uh, pretending I'm James Bond and sitting and swimming and eating well in the Bay of Naples in Ischia, the island there. But before that, 11 chapters have to be edited in 13 days. So an awful lot of work ahead, but I just want to thank the folks at Investec, particularly Chris Sanford, Simon Taylor, and John Wynn Evans, one of the smartest groups of people I get the pleasure of working with. It was great fun to see them talk about really the ideas from the book, American Grand Strategy, Past and Future. And at the end of it, we had a wonderful 4th of July, one of the few days I'm really homesick. Uh, we had an American-style band playing. Uh, we had American barbecue, hot dogs, hamburgers, and Abraham Lincoln cocktails. And uh, I felt right at home. It was great to see all of you and to get to hang out with you and talk about the things going on in the world. But now I'm back chained to my desk ahead of finishing, and I wanted to get back to us with the final episode of The World from the Great Power's Eyes. And uh, I've loved doing this so we can look at what all the chess pieces can actually do on the board. And I thought we'd end with something, a group that's not a great power, but at the regional power level in this more multipolar world has an awful lot of room to run with a football, the world from the regional powers eyes. We've already looked at the United States and China, who are superpowers, and then great powers, Japan, India, the Anglosphere, the EU, and Russia. And finally, we want to look at the regional powers. As I've said before, one of the most interesting things going on in the world at the moment is the fact that the regional powers have not gotten into line behind the United States, despite a lot of browbeating from the Biden administration. It's a curious fact that nine of the 10 most populous countries in the world have remained resolutely neutral over the Ukraine conflict. But if you look at it from their point of view, rather than our point of view, this makes eminent sense. If you're a regional power with room to run with the football in a way that you didn't have, in uh, the Cold War, and I've used the Graham Greene analogy before and will one final time now. Graham Greene, a bit like Ian Fleming, the creator of James Bond, I think Graham Greene is the greatest novelist of the 20th century, but most of his stories can be, be kind of ground down into a simple formula, a disillusioned, quasi-alcoholic, disappointed English man living in the colonies, falls in love late in life with a local woman and finds purpose in his life only to be screwed over by either the Americans or the Soviets or both. Uh, the heart of the matter is this idea. The comedians is this idea. Honorary council is this idea. Even Our Man in Havana is this idea. Maybe the greatest satirical novel about the Cold War. Um, wonderful stories. But like Ian Fleming, what they really show, Green was lamenting a lack of British agency, that Britain no longer had a place in the world where it can maneuver independently and instead was at the tender mercies of either the Americans or the Soviets or both. And Ian Fleming, the same way, why does James Bond always have to call on Felix Leiter to save him? You know, Felix Leiter, James Bond has all the skill set, but the Americans, dumb as they are, 
you have the military, and in the end, he calls for them to come, and they've, they've messed up everything with Felix Leiter, and he calls on his friend Felix to come at the last minute, although he's done all the work. This is a, you know, a fantasy of the First Order by Fleming, who was disappointed after the Suez Crisis that Britain no longer was a superpower. And showing that these powers no longer have room to run is how the First Cold War worked, that if you were in the East and, and you messed with the Russians, you had to deal with, as East Germany did in 1953 when Soviet tanks are sent in, uh, Hungary in 1956 even more brutally puts down a rebellion, uh, the Prague Spring of 1968 or Poland of 1980, that if you stray too far from the Soviet superpower, their allies smack you down. And although the Americans were more adroit at this, John le Carré, in many ways the literary heir of Graham Greene, really came to dislike the Americans because he said, in the end, the cousins are going to tell us what to do, perhaps more adroitly than sending in the tanks, but that really the allies in NATO had no other options but to go along, as le Carré pointed out, for Britain or Charles de Gaulle. There are limits to how far he could stray from America. You don't have force to frap where nuclear weapons are pointed at both the United States and the Soviets. An independent European pull to power does not come to pass. Eastern Europe goes the way of the Soviets. Western Europe goes the way of the United States. And that's the way things work. Well, that's not the world we live in now. There is this bipolar superpower Cold War between the United States and China. But at the great power level, as we've seen, they have an awful lot of room to run with a football. And even at the regional power level, there's an awful lot more autonomy out there. And so let's think of who are these regional powers that we're talking about? The populous world, the rising rest, who, who are they? In the Western Hemisphere, these are countries like Mexico, uh, Brazil, and Argentina, wary of American Yankee imperialism, still yoked to the United States by the Monroe Doctrine in the Western Hemisphere, but willing to try to have some strategic distance from America at the same time. In Asia, these are countries um, like Vietnam, closer to the United States than it's ever been because it's afraid of bully China, but oh, uneasily aware that it lives next door to China, so there are limits to how far it can stray. India, which has a fascinating foreign policy, with uh, only India would have two utterly coherent, if contradictory, foreign policies that's how India works. The United States is going to have to get used to non-binary outcomes at which it's not very good and settle for 70% of what India offers. And that's a good day. That's In the multipolar world, these shades of gray make a lot more sense than the old black and white uh, Cold War world. If the Cold War of the past was, was checkers, the multipolar era of today is chess. You It's shades of gray. You settle for draws. You settle for 70% of what you want. And India is a great example. Within the Indo-Pacific, India is resolutely pro-Western and American because the Chinese have bullied them in the high Himalaya and India is looking to the United States to, to stem Chinese adventurism in its back backyard. But at the same time, India's tradition of being a non-aligned leader of the non-aligned movement at a global level means it's much less enthusiastic to fully fall into the American camp over issues such as, such as Ukraine. And that's a grand example. Indonesia, another country that's somewhere in the middle between China and the United States um, in the Indo-Pacific. Countries like the Gulf states and Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia under MBS, disillusioned by the Biden administration, uh, using China to broker some sort of rapprochement, even if a cold one, with Iran, increasingly seeing the United States as an offshore balancer, willing to go its own way in the region far more, while still ultimately relying 
on American strategic defense. But doing things the Americans don't like, for instance, the Saudis have just initiated here in July the one million barrels um, OPEC cut in oil through OPEC plus along with Russia. So the world is getting a lot more shades of gray, a lot more complicated. The Gulf states and the Saudis beginning to go their own way. And even if they tilt somehow overall still vaguely toward America, having a lot more room to do things with the Chinese and do things like cutting the cutting the production of oil, despite the Biden administration begging them not to, being able to stand up to America and say no without there being any real consequences. Turkey, for long playing a double or even triple game, um, being a member of NATO, still having these ties to America, but at the same time, uh, moving toward Russia in a number of ways is another great example of a regional power that's growing and can do things toward America with impunity. For instance, keeping Sweden out of the NATO alliance over uh, both Erdogan's populism and also its ties as Erdogan sees Sweden as too close to Kurdish exiles. Being able to get away with this in the United States leaning on Turkey and literally nothing happening. This is a more multipolar world. The United States can't just put people into line in a way that it did before. Um, and this is a very different world than the Cold War world and one that Graham Greene, would, his, his laments would, wouldn't have now been answered, along with, with Ian Fleming. Ciao, Natasha. Uh, welcome to Real Live Broadcasting. Just saying goodbye to my very, very expert cleaning lady um, who does a great job. Um, you go to South Africa, uh, another country. Uh, with its tradition of the ANC being toward the Russians in the past, much as India's was in the Cold War, being neutral but tilting under the ANC toward Russia, given its independence background where the communists played a role funded by Moscow in being part of the Freedom Fighter Coalition around the ANC and Mandela, and always still tilting that direction. Uh, now you see the Russians uh, trying to figure out a way to have Putin over for BRICS meetings without having to arrest him as they're members of the ICC, uh, but making it very clear that they're still moving close to Russia despite the Ukrainian intervention and thinking that the BRICS are a way out from under both sides, that if the BRICS alliance grows and takes in new members, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, this is a way to formalize, and it's not there yet, but to formalize institutionally this non-aligned regional power grouping, um, that this is a way forward. So really all around the world, South Africa, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, the Gulf states, India, China, Indonesia, Mexico, Brazil, Argentina, you see these regional powers um, going their own way uh, and adapting their interests to what moves on. Then the United States cannot lazily think they're just going to fall into the camp of the United States because they like or dislike us. These are people with interests, too, who can now act on their interests in a fundamental way. So what does the United States do? Well, as I said before, the first thing it does is think differently. It thinks differently because it has to see that you, you're going to have to work with these countries that are not going to formally fall into the Western camp, are not going to be formal allies like the EU is or the Anglosphere countries are or Japan is. Um, but that doesn't mean you take your ball and go home. You settle for 70% of what you want. You stop thinking in the old Cold War binary way of it's all or nothing and say, if we can get these countries to come along with us 70% of the time, we deserve the Nobel Peace Prize. It's a good day's work. Um, this, is, this is not the black and white certitudes 
of the neoconservatives' uh, unipolar worldview that the United States is the only game in town, but it actually fits the multipolar world we live in of many powers, where the United States, sure, is still chairman of the board, but there are a lot of new board members, and they don't always do what we want. And so we have to think in a non-binary way if we're going to win them over. Secondly, we have to engage them based on their own interests and not our own. We have to find out where we have common cause. For instance, with India, stopping Chinese adventurism for different reasons suits both New Delhi and Washington. And we should build on the quadrilateral initiative and bring great power India, someday superpower India, the rising power in the world, on board 70% of the time. Talk to them in the language of interests, of deterring Chinese adventurism, where our interests are in common, of doing more together economically. China, uh, India needs more investment. The United States has a lot of investment in liquid markets that they can, they can put uh, paid to this as India grows at 6 to 8% a year moving ahead. Um, that there are economic and strategic interests in common, but we have to talk in this language and not just lazily assume everybody's on board. Likewise, with the Saudis, treat them with regard um, and accept that MBS gets to be leader of Saudi Arabia because the king of Saudi Arabia wants that. We don't get to determine who we work with in the regional powers of the world. That Sometimes we're going to have to deal with non-democratic states. Sometimes we're going to have to deal with people I don't want dating my daughter, Matilda, and that's perfectly fine. That's the world that we live in, in engaging them, respecting them, working with them and saying to the Saudis, we are still the offshore balancer and ultimate guarantor of power in the Middle East. Keep that in mind. And we want to work out with you a system whereby OPEC continues to uh, do well because that's what you want. But we continue not to have to pay ridiculous amounts of money for energy, which is what the world wants. Talking to them in this more business-like, realist manner will work. And 70% of the time, we'll get what we want. We also have to then accept that we're not always going to get what we want and that it isn't a crisis if people say no to us. That ultimately, we'll reach some sort of deal with Turkey over Sweden and get them into NATO, but it may take time and it may be frustrating. That's why they pay us. That's why this is called work. It's not easy. It's a much more complicated world, but frankly, it's a more fascinating world. And delving down to this regional power level is the key to winning the ultimate Cold War with China. One of the most striking things as we finish this look at the great powers of the world is how much the alliance system really suits the United States. Who does China have on board? Russia. That's it. Robin to China's Batman. In return, the United States has on board the EU, to some extent, firmly Japan, firmly the Anglosphere countries, uh, and to a large extent, India, certainly in the Indo-Pacific, when it comes to dealing with China. If the United States can engage these regional powers as well, winning them over 70% of the time, that's a multipolar stroke bipolar world where the United States is still by far the dominant force in the world, the ordering power of the world, even if other countries say no, and there's a lot more give than there was in the old Cold War era. That's a world that suits these power realities that we've been looking at. And that's a world we can certainly live with that's American-dominated, that is demo largely democratic, largely capitalistic, where the United States is chairman of the board, but there are indeed other board members we have to engage, down to this regional level, Brazil and Argentina and Mexico and Turkey and the Gulf states and Saudi Arabia and South Africa and India and Indonesia. This is the rising rest of the world that Jack Kennedy looked at as far back as the 1950s and saw that if we can engage them, 
based on common interests where they're in common and not getting hysterical when we reach differences and don't get what we want, this is a world that will still favor the United States for the foreseeable future. It's a much more fascinating wor a world, a world where international relations is truly and finally international in terms of power, be it economic or military, where the most important region of the world is the Indo-Pacific, whereas Goldman Sachs has said in by 2050, the three greatest economic powers in the world and great powers in the world by a long way will be Indo-Pacific countries, the United States, China, and India will dominate the world, a world where the locus of power moves to the Indo-Pacific, but a world still very favorable to American and Western dominance, even as it fundamentally changes. That's how these chess pieces move. That's how the world looks. From their point of view, regional powers don't want to be in the pocket throughout history, whoever they are, of superpowers. They want maximum freedom to maneuver. They want maximum autonomy. And they want to deal with the superpowers based on their own interests. This shouldn't terrify us or make us hysterical or make us think this is some anomaly. This is history working before our very eyes. If we can accept the history that we see before our very eyes, the future will still be a very bright one indeed. Thanks very much. Great to end our look at the world from various powers' eyes with the world from regional powers' eyes. For those of you who have subscribed, thank you, and so many of you have, please do continue to do so. And for those of you who have, please do give the $70 we're asking, which is only one cappuccino, uh, basically a month, $70 or $7 a month, $70 a year. And we will continue to look at this new world together as we move forward. And again, The Last Best Hope, A History of American Realism, the book where I unapologetically try to stitch together a governing realist philosophy for the Republican Party, will be available for pre-order as soon as September. We're moving at lightning speed to get this done, uh, and I can't wait to share it with you. So please do subscribe, please do give the $70, and please everybody buy 15 copies of the book. <laughs> Take care, and see you next week.